Glad that you guys are here this morning. Welcome to worship at Double Oak Community Church. I have no idea what Kelly was talking to you about. Uh, but listen, I am glad that you guys are here. We are doing things a little bit differently this morning as uh, the reason will become apparent uh, in just a few minutes, but glad that you guys are here today. Uh, hey, one more thing I want to announce to you, a very special announcement before we jump into our sermon for today. Uh, if you are new to the church, you might not be aware of our structure, but in addition to our staff, uh, we have both deacons and elders who help us lead here at the church. Our deacons are servants, uh, and then we have a board of elders that helps us make uh, most of the major decisions here at the congregation. Uh, we, have a, we can have a total of nine elders here at the church spanning our two campuses, uh, and periodically people will roll on and roll off of that elder board. And today, uh, I'm very excited to announce uh, a nominee to be an addition to our elder board. Today, I am nominating Michael Bowles uh, to be a new elder here at the church. Uh, if you've been here for a long period of time, Michael is probably a fixture to you. Uh, he and his wife Donna, Donna was singing up here on a platform just a moment ago. Uh, they have been here for years. He has served many years as a deacon, serves as a community group leader where he's teaching even now. Uh, he has served as an elder at a previous congregation. You might have seen him even just getting ready making the coffee for us this morning. He served in a lot of different places around our church, uh, but I have always been impressed by his heart for the Lord, how he serves and cares for people, as well as for his servant heart and how he leads other people. Uh, and so today I am nominating him to join our elder board. You say, okay, well, what does that mean for us. Well, this is the beginning of a process. I bring forward nominations to the congregation, and then we together have a chance to pray about that, and then we together will vote on whether we would like to do that or not. So as this is an official nomination, we now start a process of deliberation, where hopefully we'll be praying for Michael. If you have any questions for him, you want to get to know him, you can. You might find him out in the comments. Uh, you can contact him directly. If you have any questions or concerns, you can always talk to me or any of the other elders, and we'd be happy to talk to you uh, about that. Uh, but we are going to be going through an examination process. We've given him a, a test that he's going to be going through with the elders. We'll have an elder council. Uh, but after going through this process, if we were all in agreement, we would bring forward a vote for all of us to vote together on adding uh, Michael to our elder board. So I do hope that you'll be praying for him and with him and for all of us as we come, uh, as we begin this process. But I am very excited about him coming alongside our leadership to help lead us as a congregation. So I would like to just start with prayer uh, as we begin that process. So if you would, would you join me by bowing your heads? Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful for how you provide all that we need and more as a congregation. You provided not just a place, the people who are here, but you provided our leadership. And you have always done this consistently. And so, Lord, we are, we are thankful for the leaders that we have, but I am excited, Lord, about the possibility of Michael joining us on our elder board. Lord, I pray for him and for Donna as they go through this process that you would prepare them. God, prepare us as a congregation. We all together, Michael, Donna, all of us included, Lord, are looking for your will and your confirmation. So as we go through this process, would you give us clarity? Would you give us unity? But Lord, we are seeking your leadership as we think about making this decision. So we pray a blessing upon the Bulls family as they go through this process and our whole congregation as we contemplate this, speak, Lord. We are listening for you. We love you. In your name we pray. And we all said, amen. 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 Hey, grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is where we're going to be in just a minute. And as you are turning there, I'm already freaking some of you out. Because you're like, where in the world is all the worship? And we did one song. It was a good one. And we just quit. 
What happened? Don't worry. Listen, we're going to be doing a lot more musical worship at the end of the service today, but we're doing some things differently for a reason that will become apparent in just a moment. Psalm 95 is where we're going to be. Hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word. Psalms is right there in the middle of the Bible, easy to find. If you've got a device, you're going to have to type a little more. And if you don't have either of those, you can look on with somebody next to you. I bet there's a smiling face. I'd be happy to share uh, if you would ask them. Psalm 95 verse 1 is where we'll be in just a moment. While you guys are turning there, I wonder if you have noticed this growing trend. Uh, to me, it is a very distressing trend uh, and one that I do not know how to fix, but I see it happening more and more. Uh, my wife, Alice, and I, we enjoy going to concerts, and so every now and then we'll go travel someplace. We like to get tickets and go see, you know, some uh, act that we like. But we have noticed this in multiple places now, that while most of us are enjoying a concert, almost always somewhere near us is going to be somebody who is in no way interested in the concert that we are watching. And instead of watching the concert, they are embroiled in a deep conversation at full volume with someone sitting next to them. Now, how many of you have seen this happen before at a concert before? Anybody? Anybody? How many of you have done that before? Actually, don't raise your hand. I'll make fun of you. I really will. Don't be that person. Because seriously, this is a frustrating and infuriating. It really is. Because remember, we all came. We bought tickets to come and see this performance. Why would you then ignore said performance? We went and saw somebody. It was an act coming over from the UK. My wife said out loud, she said, he flew across an ocean to sing for you. Why would you not listen to him? Why are you talking to the person that you are with? It is infuriating. It is a distracting. But on top of that, it is confusing. Because think about this. It's very confusing. Why would you do this? Because think about what is involved. If you just want to have a conversation with somebody else, you can do this literally anywhere anywhere and you can do it for free but instead these people have paid money to buy a ticket to go through security to get up to get dressed up to show up at a certain place at a certain time to purposefully ignore the thing we all came for why would you do that it makes no sense the person reacting it's just all out of kilter with what's happening with everybody else around them you can see something similar happening in movie theaters. Because sometimes when you go to movie theaters, people feel a need to get out their phones in a movie theater. Now, I will not ask you how many of you do that because it's all of you. Because <laughs> I see this everywhere. It's the most infuriating thing. You're going to pull out this super bright object in a really dark room. We can see you. We really can. But again, not only is it distracting, it is confusing. Why would you want to get a phone out in the middle of a movie theater? There is a 40-foot screen in front of you, 40 feet long. There are speakers everywhere to immerse you in sound. They've even got heated seats now to draw you in. So you can have like a little propped up recliner. It is an amazing viewing experience. If you're sitting in front of a 40-foot screen, why would you don't want to bring out the four-inch screen in your pocket? Why would you do that? There's nothing on there. It's the same scrolling stuff you saw five minutes before you came in. Are we that addicted? There's nothing going on. And yet we say, oh, what's going on? The screen is going on. The movie is going on. Why would we do this? It's confusing. It's out of kilter. Somebody's reaction is kind of out of sync with what is happening around them. It's just a weird reaction. But look, something similar can happen in a room like this. Because look, we're a crowd of people. We all gathered here, we all came on purpose to be here, and every week we come together for a very specific reason. We came to worship Jesus Christ, amen? 
That's why you got up. That's why you braved the rain. That's why you came here this morning. It says, hey, we came here on purpose for a very specific reason. And it wasn't just to see other people or because it's a habit. We said, no, we came to worship Jesus Christ. But what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say worship? Because that's what we're doing right now. We call this our worship service. A few different things happen in this room. But at this hour, at this time, this is our worship service. What do we mean when we say worship? Well, look, there's a lot of different ways you could talk about this. And we're actually going to do an entire sermon series, really walking through what this is. But if we're going to do that, we need a definition. And there's a lot of different definitions uh, for worship. But the one that I really like comes from a guy named Warren Wearsby. Uh, some of y'all might remember that name. He wrote a, a series of very popular commentaries back in the day. He was a pastor, commentator. Uh, but let me show you his definition for worship. I really like this. He says this. He said, worship is the believer's response of all that he is. Mind, emotions, will, and body to all that God is and says and does. I'll say that again. Worship is the believer's response of all that he is. Mind, emotions, will, and body to all that God is and says and does. That's a good understanding of worship. But I really want to key in on this word here in that first line where it says response. Because if you want to understand what worship is, that's what worship is at its core. Worship is a response. It's a reaction. Worship does not start with us. It starts with Him. We came not to worship ourselves or to worship each other. We came to worship Him. We are reacting to the greatness of who God is. And that then provokes our worship. Our worship is a reaction to who God is. That's worship in a nutshell. But, but how do we do that? What does it look like? Well, it depends on what or who we are worshiping. See, even that word worship actually gives us uh, an indication of what we ought to be doing or why we ought to be doing it. Uh, the English word worship is a shortened form of an older word. Uh, the older English word was worth-ship, W-O-R-T-H-ship, worth-ship, right? But that's kind of hard to say, isn't it? Worth-ship, worth-ship, worth. You can see why we shortened it, right? When people kept saying it, they shortened it down to worship. But, but that tells you something. When we are worshiping, we are worshiping somebody who is worthy, right? Someone or something is worthy. It is worthwhile, and we are reacting to him. We're reacting to it. Whenever we are worshiping, we are reacting to something or someone that we find worthy. So in this room, we are reacting to the Lord, to who he is and what he has done or what he has said. We then worship him in response to what he has done. Why? Because who he is and says and does is worthy to be worshipped. Amen. But look, this is true in anything because we are not the only people who worship. Everybody worships. Believer, non-believer, everybody worships. We all worship someone or something. It happens all the time. Sometimes it's spontaneous, sometimes it's not. But when you and I encounter things that are worthy, we worship, we respond, right? So think about, uh, think about a football game, right? If you are a football fan and your football team scores, what do you do? You sit quietly, right? Is that what you do? No, this is Alabama. That's not what we do. You freak out, right? You jump up, man, fist pumping, hands there. Woo! Man, you were excited. Man, the cheerleaders might be there, but you don't need them. Man, when your team scores, you get excited, 
Man, you love it. You're thrilled. You do a high five. You might stand up. You get loud. Why? Because this has provoked a spontaneous reaction in you. Same thing as the opposite team scores. You get angry. You get frustrated. You get sad or worried, right? You don't have to be do anything. This is a reaction that occurs because you care, because this has value to you, because it's worthy to us. We react, right? It is spontaneous. And so it doesn't have to be God. There can be all kinds of things that we worship, that we react to. It has a worthship to us. And many times that is spontaneous, but not always. Sometimes it is not spontaneous. It's a choice that we make. You can worship voluntarily. Think about when a bride comes down the aisle. When a bride comes down the aisle during her wedding, what do we all do? You stand up, right? That's what we do. When a bride comes down the aisle, out of honor for the bride, we stand up. Now listen, I perform a lot of weddings. It's my job as the minister to say, Please rise, right? I just make that little move and everybody stands up. As I was preparing this week, here's what I realized. Not once has anybody ignored me with that command. Not once. That has never happened. I'm just going, please rise. And somebody in the front, I'm good. And just sit down. That has never occurred. Everyone stands. Why? Out of honor for the bride on her wedding day. You stand up when the national anthem is sung. What do you do? You stand, you take off your hat, you put your hand over your heart and you sing. Why? Out of honor for our country, out of honor for our nation. You choose to honor. It is a response. It is a reaction because we find something to be worthy. We are then going to act or react in an appropriate manner. That's worship. Worship at its core is a response. It's a reaction to who God is and what he has said and what he has done. And so the question is then, okay, then, then what does that look like for us? Because for sometimes we react and sometimes we don't. Because honestly, if, if worship is a reaction to something that is worthy, if we don't react, that is a sign of something that is unworthy, right? If you fail to react, that would mean that we don't find this to be very worthy. Think junk mail, right? What do you do with junk mail? You chuck it in the trash. And even if they manage to trick you, you get that little blank envelope and you open it up and you say, oh, maybe it's important. This is the most important over. No, it's not. And you throw it away. You don't even finish reading the sentence. You just take it and chuck it away. Why? Because it doesn't have value to you. Our reaction is to reject it. We don't yell or scream or get excited or pour over it. We just chuck it away. If something does not have value, we do not react. So when it comes to us in this room, when we come into worship, what ought our reaction to be? What should our worship look like? And that's really what we're going to look at over the course of the next few weeks is what is our response? What should it look like for us? And we're going to spend a few weeks talking about all the different kinds of reactions in worship. But before we jump into Psalm 95, a little quick sidebar here. Some of you might be going, all right, Adam, this is interesting uh, that we're going to be talking about worship, but, but are you telling me that we're about to restart the worship wars? Because I got tired of those and I don't want to do those anymore. Does anybody remember the worship wars? Who remembers the worship wars? Anybody? They happened back in the 90s. Uh, some of you were not alive for that, so here's what happened. Um, <laughs> look, back in the 90s, contemporary music really kind of came on the scene for the very first time, right? And some people loved it. And other people hated it. And thus the worship wars began with everybody going, I like hymns, I like choruses. And it became like this war of who was going to do what in worship. Everybody got all in a tizzy about it. Look, you might notice here that we didn't pick a side in the worship wars. We do a little bit of both. 
we do older songs. We do newer songs. Why? Because we have a very diverse congregation. We have a lot of different ages represented, so we do some things that everybody likes across the generations. We do that out of love for one another, right? But no, we're not starting the worship wars, and here's why. If you and I start a conversation by talking about style, we have missed the point. When it comes to worship, if you start the conversation by talking about style, you have completely missed the point. Worship doesn't start with us. It doesn't start with what we want. It doesn't start with what we like. It starts with the one we are reacting to. If you want to talk about worship, it can't start with our reaction. It has to start with the one who provokes the reaction. So before we get to how it looks, we ought to talk about who we're reacting to. And now let's look at Psalm 95 to see what the psalm writer can teach us about worship this morning. So Psalm 95, we don't know who wrote it, but listen to what he says. He says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. In the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, as we begin to break down Psalm 95, when you look at verses 1 and 2, you see a lot of responses right off the bat. But remember, we can't start there. We're going to get there in a few minutes, but we don't start with our response. We start with why we ought to respond. And quickly, the psalm writer here is going to give us two main reasons why we ought to worship, why we ought to praise the Lord. The first one is God's greatness. The first reason we ought to worship him is because of God's greatness. Look at verse 3. It says, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He is pointing us towards the grandeur and glory of God. When we think about God, we cannot think of him in finite terms. We cannot think about him in small terms. We cannot put him in a box. He blasts through all boxes. Why? Because he is beyond all things. He is the great God above all gods. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who spoke the universe into existence and thus has power and dominion over all of it. Because he is not simply a creator, he is sovereign over his creation. That means he has power. He has control. He has built it with order. He says, I have made all of this and is doing exactly what I want it to do. He has sovereignty over everything. That's why he uses the word here. He is the great king above all gods. Now look, that's a hard thing for us to understand. We are Americans who live in the midst of a democracy. You have never lived under a king. 
But when you come to the Lord, he is a king. He has full and complete autonomy, authority. He is the king above all gods. More than that, he is the king of all kings. There is no power above him. He is the Lord above all lords. There's nobody who can tell him what to do. He is the grandest, most great, the most glorious being that has ever existed. He is all powerful, all knowing, all wise, all everything. He blows past all comparisons. That is the grandeur and the greatness of the God that we worship. It ought to provoke a response. Look at verse 4. It says, In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. He uses some, some poetry here. Where he says, look at the heights of the mountains versus the depths of the oceans. Think of the highest peak on the planet and the vista that you can see with that kind of view. He says, I am there at that highest point and over all that you could see. Go to the opposite. Go to the depths of the earth, the places we haven't even explored yet. Water covers three quarters of the planet. We haven't even seen, no one has seen parts of the ocean. He says, at the deepest parts of the oceans with beings you can't understand, but I created, I am there too. You can't go anywhere on the planet where I am not present. And our God is not localized. He's not the God of the forest. He's not the God of the oceans. He's not God of the mountains. He is not the God of a particular place or people or time. He says, no, I am the God who is over all things. I am in all places at all times for all peoples. When the heights or the depths, I am the God above all of it. Look at verse 6. Uh, verse 5 and 6, it says, The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He's the creator. If anyone owns this world, it is the Lord. He not only created the world, he created us. He made us in his image. We do not create our own destiny. We don't create our own meaning. God says, no, I created everything on purpose. It has meaning because I made it so. But that meaning comes from him. Do you see the grandeur and the greatness and the glory of God? Do you see how big and how vast and how powerful and how beautiful and how wise and how incredible that he is? Have you contemplated the vastness of all that he can comprehend, all that he can do, all that he has done and will do? Can you actually open your mind as wide as you can and realize that you still cannot fully comprehend the greatness of God? Why do we worship him? Because God is grand and glorious and great. But here's the question. Do you see him that way? When we come to worship, is that the God we come to worship? Is that the God that we come to give praise to? Because for some of us, it's Adam, I like God, but we got a very narrow view of who God is. God is more than just our friend. He's more than just somebody who's wise. He's more than just a shoulder to cry on. He is all of these things, but he is so much greater. He's not just our conscience. He's not just an idea. He's not just a, a philosophy. No, he is the great and grand God who is sovereign over all creation. And when you and I see the Lord in his grandness and his glory, it will provoke a response. So the first thing that engenders our worship is his greatness. But here's the second thing. It's his goodness. This God is not only great, he's good. Look at verse 1. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now, that is important here because this God, as great as he is, is not impersonal. 
it would make sense if that God is so great and we are so small that we wouldn't really understand him. He would have no reason to give us any, any thought at all, any concern at all. But this is the God who is the rock of our salvation. Listen, if you've been in church any length of time, and especially if you grew up in church, that, that, phrase, or that word salvation might just kind of be familiar to you. But, but don't let it get too familiar. Think about what this means. The Lord saved us. When we were lost, he saved us. When we were in a pit that we had gotten ourselves into and we could not save ourselves and we were going to die, the Lord sends his son to save us. When we were enslaved to sin and we can't fix ourselves, we can't fix what we've done and we can't even stop doing what we're doing, the Lord saves us from our sin at unbelievable cost to himself. Jesus Christ comes and gives his life to save us. He is the rock of our salvation. More than that, look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This vast and great and uh, incredible God is described as a shepherd. If he's our shepherd, do you know what that means? It means that he loves us. He cares for us. He guides us. He nurtures us. He protects us. He provides for us. He gives us everything we need and more when we are just dumb sheep. That, that might be offensive to some of you, but when you're in the presence of that kind of God, yes, we are dumb sheep. We go astray time and again. We get ourselves in scrapes and problems time and again. We think we know what we're doing and we get in trouble time and again. And this great God comes after us time and again. He rescues us. He helps us. He forgives us, cleans us up, provides for us, feeds us, helps us to grow. What an unbelievably gracious God that we have. A God who loves us more than anybody else in this universe, who cares for you, who knows every hair that's on your head, who knows all your days before you spend them. He's everywhere you are, knows every thought of your mind, and though he knows all the evil things about us, still counts you so valuable and worthy that he literally gives his life to save you. That is amazing grace, is it not? We sung that song, Amazing Grace, for generations, but... It truly is amazing when you think about who he is and who we are and what he has done for us. That ought to engender praise, should it not? That ought to engender a response when you and I meditate on the greatness and the goodness of our God. It ought to engender a response. So, but what happens when it doesn't? What does it mean when, when we see all of these things and it doesn't actually engender a response to us? Look, there's a lot of different reasons for that, and we're going to go over many of them over the course of the series, but I think one of them is this. If we can see the greatness and the goodness of God, but it's not engendering any sort of response, could it be that we have not truly experienced Him in His fullness? Could it be? Hi. Hi. Um, could it be that we have not experienced God in all that he is? It's possible. This past summer, I had an interesting experience. 
we were in Romania with our mission team, which P.S., we're heading back this summer. We get an informational meeting today after this very service. Stick around if you like some more information about that. Uh, but every summer we take a team uh, to go and lead a youth camp for a bunch of Romanian teenagers uh, in the Romanian will, uh, countryside. So we had about almost close to 100 teenagers uh, doing this camp. And we had a fantastic time, but every night we do something fun. It's youth camp. Uh, and one of the nights uh, we had planned a talent show where the kids would sign up and that they would do a talent show. Now, I got to be honest. I have been doing youth camps for 26 years, uh, and I have seen lots of things. And I have seen some terrible talent shows. Because, um, look, talent shows are, are, are they're, they're all across the map, right? Every now and then you get something cool. Most of it's okay. And there are some things you just wish you had never seen, Right? Uh, and look, I've seen a lot that I've tried to scrub from my memory. I really have. Um, and so look, we're doing a talent show and it was fine. I said, it'll be fine. I don't know. It'll be in Romanian half the time. I don't even know if I'll understand it. It'll be fine. Uh, and look, it was, it was fine. It was a fine talent show. Uh, but at the very end, uh, th- there's one person who says, Hey, I, I, I do actually want to do my talent. And it was a, it was a young lady. Uh, and she said she was going to sing, uh, an operatic song for us. Uh, and she said, I didn't sign up earlier because I just didn't know if anybody, if teenagers would really care about hearing an opera song. And quite frankly, I agreed with her. Um, <laughs> and probably most of the teenagers did too, right? Because look, that's just not like the thing that everybody is listening to. And quite honestly, I don't either, right? I know what opera is. I have heard a couple songs. It just doesn't float my boat, okay? It doesn't. It's in Italian. I don't speak Italian. I don't know what they're saying, right? I just, I, it's not a, an art form. I just totally appreciate. So I get it, but I'm like, you, you're probably right. But she says, hey, I'm going to sing. Uh, and so she did. She was the last act of the night. And none of us were prepared for what we were about to experience. Because here's what we did not know. This young lady, who was, what, 16, 17, um, had already sung with the city opera there in Yash uh, and been with them. She'd also traveled to three or four European countries to sing for their operas as well. This young woman was a phenomenon. uh, And we had no idea. She was just another kid at camp. Uh, and so we played it over Spotify, and they played the music. And I kid you not, I've never heard anything like that in my entire life. You could have heard a pin drop. Seventh graders to twelfth graders and all of us adults in the room, we could not believe the beauty of what we were hearing. I teared up. I don't know why. I don't know what she was saying. <laughs> I still don't. But that was one of the most beautiful things I have ever been present for in my entire life. And when she finished, that entire room erupted, leapt to their feet, and we could not stop clapping for what we had just experienced. It was unbelievable. I know what opera is. I kind of understand what opera is. I had never experienced being in the presence of that ever in my life. Here's the problem, I think, for some of us. I think some of us, we know who God is. We understand a little bit about who God is. I wonder if you've actually experienced who God is. Because when you experience the greatness and the goodness of this God, how can we fail to react? How can we fail to respond in the presence of that kind of greatness and goodness? And look, this is actually very serious. 
To not react, or to even worse, to stifle your reaction is to risk something spiritually. And I don't even know if we're fully aware of how dangerous this is. You actually see this in the text. Look at verse 7, because something interesting happened in verse 7. I don't know if you caught this. But in verse 7, there's a shift in tense. The person speaking shifts. From verses 1 through 7, it is the psalm writer speaking. But in the middle of verse 7, and literally it happens mid-verse, it's no longer the psalm writer speaking, it's God himself speaking. This becomes a prophetic oracle where God now is speaking to his people. Look at verse 7. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. Catch it? And put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. See that switch? God's now speaking to his people. And he says, if I'm speaking to you, don't harden your hearts like those people did at Massah and Meribah. Now, those two words are probably words that you are not familiar with, but the Israelites would have. The folks hearing this would have instantly known what those two words mean. Because you see, sometimes places... Uh, become associated with something historic that happened there. We do the same thing in English, or in America, rather. Uh, think about it. If I say the words Alamo, or Gettysburg, or Ground Zero, those are place names. But they also are indicative of something that happened there. And when I say those names, you remember what happened there as well as the place. Okay, well, that's Massah and Meribah. When they hear those two words, they don't just think of a place. They think of something that happened there. Okay, what happened there? Glad you asked. It's actually in Scripture. It's in Exodus chapter 17. So let's, let's look at that real quick. And I'll put it up on the screen for you. Exodus 17, starting in verse 1. The Israelites have been set free from Egypt. Just a few months prior, they had been set free. They walked through the Red Sea, and the Lord is now beginning to lead them in the desert. Let me show you what happens. Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the peoples of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Did you hear that? Is the Lord among us or not? Now look, you can always bring your questions to the Lord. Always. You can even bring your complaints to the Lord. But this, this is a bit rich. This is a bit disingenuous. Here's why. The people asking this question three months prior had walked out of Egypt with a wall of water on their left and right. 
They had personally walked through the grandest physical miracle that God has ever performed on the planet. They experienced it. After that, as they walked through the wilderness, they could look and see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, a physical representation of God leading them in the wilderness. That very morning, God had fed them with manna, supernatural food that formed all along the floor of the desert. There's no food out there, but God had fed them with manna in the desert. It was still sitting in their stomachs when these very same people have the gall to say this, is God with us or not? Because I don't see any water, and I'm thirsty, and I'm not getting what I want. Not seeing a water fountain here, Lord. Where are you at? I don't know if you love us. I don't know if you really care for us. Do you see how disingenuous that is? This is the people of God choosing not to see who God is, but who he isn't. Not to see what God has done, but try to see what he hasn't done to somehow interpret their circumstances as if God isn't with them when he had been proving time and again through the grandest means possible of just how much he loves and cares for them and they still have the audacity to say, where's my water? I don't know if you love me. The reaction is out of sync with who God is and what he's done. You see the difference? And right here in Psalm 95, he's saying this, Don't harden your hearts, verse 8. If you purposely choose to say, I'm not going to see the goodness of God. I'm not going to listen to what God says. I don't want to listen to the Bible. I don't want to listen to these different things. I'm just mad about this. If you are refusing to see or hear the Lord, it can harden your heart. It can make you unable to hear him in the future, unable to experience him in the future. It literally just calcifies our heart to where we cannot respond to them if we start by refusing to respond to him. And so it's important. You say, yeah, but Adam, that was back then. But it's not back then. It is today. Because remember, that happened in Exodus 17. But here in Psalm 95, the psalm writer is saying, today, today if you hear his voice, today if you hear him, don't harden your heart. You see, yeah, but Adam, I was way back in the time of Psalms. Okay, well, you can go even forward to the time of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews. Because in Hebrews chapter 3, he quotes this exact same Psalm. And he says, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, Christians, hundreds of years after Psalms, and saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Which means that right now, in 2024, the Lord is speaking to us and saying, today, by the Holy Spirit, he speaks. Today, don't harden your heart. Hear him. And if you hear him and see him and begin to understand him, then it ought to lead to a response. Why would we not respond to who God is and what he has done? So now, now we can get back to verses one and two. So what does that look like? What are we even talking about here, Adam? What are we talking about with a response in worship? Well, look at all of the different responses in verses 1, 2, and 6. Look at verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Look at verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Do you see all that? You've got singing, making a joyful noise. You see that twice. Thanksgiving. Then you're going to get kneel, worship, bow down, songs of praise. 
This is, this is all over the map. You've got tons of different kinds of ways to respond to the Lord. At the very beginning, he says, listen, sing. Look, we sing when we come in here. That's not something we just like. We Christians have always sung through all generations, through all cultures. You're going to see it in the future. It's there in Revelation. We sing to the Lord. It brings something out of us. It moves us in a specific way. But specifically, he says to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Every commentator I read said that this English is woefully inadequate. Make a joyful noise? That sounds silly, does it not? That sounds like this little, little happy birding, little horns, right? Make a joyful noise. That sounds silly. Listen, this phrase means raucous praise. This means loud, fist-pumping, top-of-your-lungs kind of praise. Make a joyful noise. Cheer. Make loud praise to the Lord. Then there's thanksgiving. There's more singing. And then down in verse 6, there's the opposite end of the spectrum. Man, I got to kneel and bow down. I, I got to kneel before the Lord, my maker. I got to bow down. I got to lay prostrate before the Lord and, and say, God, you are worthy. You're so much grander than I am. I'm not worthy to stand in your presence. There's a reverence and an awe that comes upon us in the presence of God. You've got loud, raucous worship. You've got reverence and awe. There's thanksgiving. You could add it into that silence and prayer, standing and sitting and kneeling. There's all different kinds of responses. So what is ours? What is our response when we come in here for worship? What is our response to the Lord? Now look, some of y'all getting a little nervous. Say, I don't know what you're talking about here. You moving as Pentecostal? What are we doing? I grew up Baptist. I'm nervous. I don't know what you're asking about. Look, this is Scripture of him saying these are appropriate responses to the Lord. And look, it's going to be different for everybody. There's no one right way of doing this. But there ought to be a response. The lack of response is the problem. But, but if you need to respond, that's going to look differently. Look, not everybody is going to react exuberantly, all right? Some of this is personality. Say, Adam, I'm just a little bit nervous. I'm not that much of an exuberant person. Listen, I get it. We have different temperaments. I'm a little bit more exuberant than normal. I am aware. <laughs> We're not all the same, and that's okay. That is fine. But here's my question. If you say, Adam, that's just not me. I just don't react that way. That's cool. Some of us are different. Let me ask you a question, though. Are you consistent in that? Because if you're exuberant in other places and you aren't here, that's a problem. Are you consistent? If you're flat everywhere, good for you, man. <laughs> but if you're not at the football games and you are here, why is that? Because there's a reason. And I don't know if you've really looked at that before. So just be consistent. We're going to react differently, but there ought to be a reaction. Some people say, Adam, I just, I, I, I get nervous, kind of, you know, if I be, maybe raising my hand, I get nervous, I'm raising my hand, I'm like, Ooh, right, you can't do it, right? I don't even know what this is, right? You know, I got a little tiny little hand going on, a little T-Rex hand. I don't know what that is. Okay, you say, Adam, I just don't know what people are going to think. Seriously? You don't know what people are going to think? In this room, hundreds of people who got up to worship Jesus on purpose, you don't know what they're going to think? I think they'll be cool. Now look, if this is two o'clock in your office, that might be different, right? I can get your concern there. Adam, I don't know what people think. Uh, you're probably right. That seems a little bit out of character. They would probably think you're being a little weird. But in this place, ain't nobody gonna think you're weird. They're not. Why are we worried about that? He said, Adam, I'm just worried about being a distraction to other people. Really? Is that really the thing? Now look, at, 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 at one level, I really do appreciate this. 
Please don't be super distracting. If you say, I just feel like I can start doing jumping jacks and running around the room. Okay, please don't. Um, that would be a hair distracting to other people. It would. I doubt that's what the Lord's really asking you to do. Uh, but if the Lord's asking, hey, raise your hands in worship, man, sing with all you got. Hey, man, you need to get on your knees before the Lord. I don't really think that's going to be all that distracting to other people. And honestly, it might be dangerous if the Lord is moving in your heart and you just go, mm-mm, not doing it. Go pray with somebody, mm-mm, not doing it. Hey, you need you to do this right now, mm-mm, not doing it. Hey, hey lift, lift that hand a little more, mm-mm, not doing it. Why are you stifling that? Why would you hold that back? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah. Instead, sing a joyful noise to the Lord. Come before his gates with thanksgiving. Let us kneel and bow down. You might want to stand. You might want to sit in prayer and say, God, I am just overwhelmed in gratitude and thankfulness. Or maybe in surrender, I open up my hands and say, God, listen, all I have is yours. Maybe you want to get on your knees. God, I need to repent. But God, I just want to kneel before the greatness of all you are. I want to stand with all I have and sing at the top of my lungs. I want to go and talk to somebody over in the prayer room. Come see me up the front or just come kneel at the front. Hey, what's our response to the greatness and the goodness of who God is? Because what is not in doubt is that he is absolutely worthy. So do this one. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to practice this. So we're going to spend some extra time in worship, not a single song. we got a, a few songs that we're going to sing. So I'd, I'd encourage you to get comfortable because we have an opportunity now to respond to the Lord in song. And remember, there's no expectation for you to react any particular way. In fact, to try to gin something up or to gin up an emotion or, or, or some sort of fake reaction, that would be worse. But there's freedom here. As we've all gathered as brothers and sisters, there's freedom here to respond to the Lord. Don't think about others. Think about Him. See if He can open up our eyes to see Him in ways we've never seen Him before, to hear His Word and receive it at a level you never have before. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you in a way that you've never been willing to hear Him before. That might encourage you to stand or to sit or to kneel or to pray or to seek someone out for prayer. We're going to have the opportunity to do all of that. You don't have to look to anybody else for your response, but let's be open to the Lord. And as he moves us, let's respond to him in worship. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for the invitation to worship you. I don't honestly think we add a whole lot to you. And yet you seek us out. You say we're the apple of your eye. You call us sons and daughters. You treasure us. You protect us. You help us. You save us. And we don't even deserve it. And yet you keep coming after us. Well, we're grateful for that. And so in these moments, we have come here for this very reason, not simply to hear, but to respond. And so for all of us in this room, from all of our different spiritual places, would you draw us closer to yourself? God, we've drawn near to you. Would you draw near to us and help us just to see who you are, to know more of who you are, to enjoy more of who you are. And Lord, we in this moment will choose to react to you with our mind, our body, our will, and our emotions, all that we are. We want to respond to all that 
you are and who you are and what you say and what you do. And so, Father, in these moments, we we come to you open, honest, and simply ask for you to move, but we choose to give you honest worship. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.